Well, many of you know, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, this is actually week eight of our Unafraid series. So when Condo wanted to launch this uh, a while back, I, th- I think we thought it would be maybe four, five weeks at most, but it just seems to be an important topic. Dealing with fear in your life. And you know, I've thought about that. You have too. We all have fear in our lives. But there's almost like different levels of fear, different intensity of fear in our lives. It can manifest itself in anxiety. It can manifest itself in panic, uh, terror, whatever that might be. So we all have issues of fear in our lives, no doubt. We're human. We just do. And so maybe you have some of that anxiety, fear, like, oh, I got a big test tomorrow. Or a paper's due on Wednesday and I haven't even started yet, you know that kind of anxiety, or I have an important job interview this week, and I'm a bit anxious about that. So those kinds of fears are fears that many of us have, at least weekly, it seems like. Then there's another level of fear I think about. Some of you, like me, have been in a situation where you've been one of that person sitting in the waiting room while somebody you love dearly, a child, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, is undergoing major surgery. Some of you know that, what that's like. You're waiting, you're waiting. And it's especially hard when the surgeon or someone has said, this is a two-hour surgery, and you're now into the fourth hour. And you get pretty nervous. And your brain can go to kind of that worst-case scenario place. Not a good place to go. Maybe one of the most terrifying fears that maybe you've experienced, I have, is when you're somewhere, in my case, I wasn't in another city or country, but a scenario where you're someplace and you have your young children with you and you take your eye off your five-year-old for like 10 seconds and he's gone. He's gone. Any of you have ever felt that parental terror? It's horrible. It's terrible, especially if you're in a place where it's not familiar. And um, so my point is this, that we have been talking about fear, but what we've been trying to really direct ourselves toward is not, well, we just got to be more courageous. We got to suck it up and be more courageous. That's really not been our goal. Our goal has been to tap into God's courage, to learn to trust God and even be willing to step into situations that are terrifying. And we have just seen over and over and over again in our study of characters in scripture, people who did that because God, whether it was Moses or whether it was Daniel or whoever it might be, because God had led his people to step into something very difficult, but he said, I'm with you, right? Be strong and courageous, right? And he does the same for us. I really do. Sometimes, though, you know, often we think of the situations of life, you know, sometimes we're most fearful when the unexpected happens, when we feel like we've just been blindsided by life. And many of us have been there, too. But sometimes God calls us to voluntarily step into something that is very fearful, because that's what he's called us to do, because it's the right thing to do. To say the unpopular thing sometimes is the right thing to do. 
to step into a situation, a ministry, a relationship of a person who is deeply broken where others are saying, that's not smart, you're going to get burned, is often the right thing to do. And it takes courage. And so that's the kind of courage we're going to look at together this morning, is willingly, voluntarily stepping into or, or having deep conviction about things that may or may not be popular at the time. Well, there's a character in the New Testament. He's one of my favorites. His name is Barnabas. And some of you know about Barnabas. Yes, his name means son of encouragement, but there's a whole lot more to him than that. And so what I want to share with you this morning will be in the book of Acts is about this incredible man named Barnabas who I think we can learn a great deal from. So I'm going to have you turn to Acts chapter 9, if you would, please. Acts chapter 9. Now, I can't really talk much about Barnabas without giving you some really important background and context about the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus, which was his birth name, his original name, because their two lives intersect tremendously in what we're going to be looking at together this morning. So many of you know the story of Saul of Tarsus. Um, He became the great Apostle Paul. And so I thought it would be important to look at a portion of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to lay the the groundwork for our study of Barnabas this morning, okay? So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says this. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was a term they used for the early church, the followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Most of you knew about that, about Saul's background, right? He hated Christians. He hated Christians to the point that he had them in prison, some of them executed. It's not it fascinating that the man that God would use later to write 13 or 14, depending on if he wrote Hebrews or not, of the books of our New Testament was a Christian hater? Isn't that amazing? It goes on in verse 3. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. This is without a doubt one of the most dramatic and impactful conversions in the last 2,000 years since the birth of the church. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Now, the thing about Saul is that um, the reason why he was such a hater of this sect called Jesus followers was because of his zeal for Judaism. Saul wasn't some, you know, cartel drug lord. He was not some murderer. He was not any of those things. He was so zealous 
for Judaism, for that pure religion that he had been raised in and educated in, that he saw the Jesus followers as a threat. And so that's why he did what he did. His conversion was dramatic. And have you been knocked off, knocked off a horse and blinded when you gave your life to Jesus, not me? Mine felt pretty dramatic, I remember, emotionally. But that was his conversion. He was struck blind. The passage goes on to say that his, uh, his companions who were with him took him to Damascus. That's where he was going because he was supposed to meet up with a man named Ananias. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas at Straight, on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Saul had a reputation. (laughs) And Ananias knew all about him. It's like, what? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias' response was the response of everybody who was a believer. Steer clear of Saul. Run when you hear his name. And yet God was now commissioning this godly man, Ananias, to go to Saul. And it's so incredible what happens as the passage continues. It tells us, that, um, that Saul first receives his sight again. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon him. It says that he went and was baptized as a testimony of his faith and then pedal to the metal for Saul as a witness, as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. That's what happens. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God again, All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Paul had a testimony, a serious testimony, didn't he? And God had just transformed his life and he's already beginning to just preach Christ wherever he went. Okay, I want you to fast forward with me three years. During a period of three years from Saul's conversion until the situation we're going to talk about in just a moment, um, Paul was obviously growing in his faith. There are illusions in, uh, in Galatians that he spent time in Arabia. Some people say it was quiet meditation. It was learning. Some people say Jesus met with him. Not sure what happened but we know that he was beginning to really grow in his faith. Now, verse 26. When he, referring to Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and not believing that he really was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Okay, so that's all kind of my my background or context as we now start talking about Barnabas. Barnabas, this isn't the first time his name appears. Actually, he's introduced back in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. And by the way, his real name wasn't Barnabas. It was Joseph. Look at this, verse 36, Acts 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Any of you have nicknames growing up? Were they nice like son of encouragement? Any of you have older siblings? Any of you have friends that your nickname was not that nice? I'm sure mine wasn't. And so, but that's what they called him. And it stuck. Maybe there were just too many Josephs around. We needed a, another, another name for you, Barnabas, son of encouragement. What an awesome name. And the passage that I just read out of uh, Acts 9 exemplifies that about him. Did you see this? Did you see what it says about him? Barnabas obviously had become one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. That's the mother church there in Jerusalem. And some pretty awesome leaders like uh, Peter and James were part of the leadership. And Barnabas undoubtedly was one of the leaders as well. So here's the scene. Saul, after three years, says, hey, I'm going to go. I'm going to go get to know these guys. Maybe in his mind, I want to go learn from these guys. I want to minister with these incredible apostles, these men who actually walked with Jesus. And as he goes, they say, close the doors and act like we're not here, you know, or whatever they did. You know, it's like, no way, no way, except for Barnabas, the ultimate advocate. I love this about him. This is why he's one of my favorite characters. Because Barnabas said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to go seek Saul out because I want to hear his story. I want to hear his story. You know, that's something the Lord has so impressed on me the last couple of years is don't judge anybody until you hear their story. Amen? It's so true, my friends. Because often, you know, we'll be with people and they'll seem very difficult to be around or very, you know, fill in a blank, obnoxious or angry or who knows what. And we just make these judgments and we almost immediately say, I'm out. (laughs) No way that I want to have a relationship with that person. But when you and I take time to hear people's stories, there are a lot of people that are just so wounded There are a lot of people. There are a lot of believers who are so wounded. There are so many people who don't know Jesus and don't even know where to go with their pain, right? And there's something about sitting with them and saying, you know, I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to take you for a cup of coffee. You know, it would would just be great to do that. And in the midst of that conversation, you can gently say, I'd love to hear about your life. I'd love to hear about your story. I see that in Barnabas. What an example he is. The other apostles were saying, no way. Barnabas said, I want to go hear his story. 
And that's what he did. So I'm going to be giving you three principles about courage from Barnabas' life this morning. And here's my first one. Courage means putting your reputation on the line. I think that's exactly what he was doing. I mean, I wonder what Peter and James were saying to him. You're going to do what? Are you crazy? Do you want us to start planning the funeral now? (laughs) You know, are you nuts? And he goes, no, I need to hear this guy's story. That's what he does. Sometimes it means allowing, making decisions where other people think you are foolish or even a fool. Sometimes following Jesus fully, my friends, causes other people to think you're nuts. You're crazy. You have lost it. It does. And I'm saying even other believers can say that to you. I've been privileged in my world to know lots of leaders, Christian leaders and pastors and students when I worked at the seminary and other places that feel the call of God to something that is hard, to something that does not make sense in our beautiful American dream world of make a lot of money and retire comfortably. It's the opposite of that. It's that flipped on its head. And yet I've noticed as I read my Bible that living fully for Jesus or as he, decide, as he defined how to be a disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me fully, often causes other people around you to think you're crazy or foolish or horribly naive. And in their mind, it affects your reputation. But you know what? Who cares? That's what I say. <laughs> Who cares? I want to take a minute and talk to my fellow empty nesters about adult kids. Can I do that? I can, because I am one, you know? So that gives me credibility. Plus, as Kondo would say, I got the mic, and so I do. So anyway, here's what I want to say about my fellow, fellow empty nester parents who have adult children. I've seen this happen. No finger pointing whatsoever. But sometimes people have adult kids who maybe are headed toward a lucrative career, something that mom and dad are very proud of, you know. Oh, my daughter's going to fill in the blank when she finishes her master's degree, da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever it might be. And that's all fine and wonderful. It is. But sometimes I have seen some adult children who really love Jesus have some kind of moment with Jesus where God calls them to a completely different life, a life of serving him maybe in a hard, hard place. And I've seen and heard Christian parents say, I don't think you want to do that. That is financially very unwise. That is foolish. You're so talented in this area and whatever they may not say or certainly think to their children. And it's almost like, and and we all can be guilty of this. This is not me pointing any fingers. We can all be guilty of this, is that 
Our goals for our children are almost identical of the world's goals for their children. Amen? As long as she's happy and has a comfortable lifestyle, we're good. What? That is your ultimate goal for your Christian child? I don't see it, my friends. I don't see it in God's word. I'm not saying that God doesn't call people to careers where they make money or whatever. That's fine. But that is not God's ultimate call for our lives and for the way we raise our children. I wanted my children, I'm praying my grandchildren as well, many of you do too, that they just follow Jesus fully, whatever that looks like for them. And it may not be your plan for them. And it may not look exactly like what you chose to do. That's fine. Can I tell you something? When you have adult kids who are all in with Jesus, who marry someone who's all in for Jesus, you get on your face and thank Jesus for that. That is the greatest blessing there is. Not I'm so proud of my son because he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars every year and has three homes. Now, if God blesses you that way, that's fine. I'm not saying that's sinful by any means. I'm just saying I want you, I hope, want your kids to follow fully Christ's plan for their life. That's what I'm saying. And that's the greatest blessing as a parent. When your kids walk with God and you're not coercing them to come to church with you, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Here's my point. My point is that what I see in Barnabas is what others think really doesn't matter. It's what Jesus thinks. It's what God has called me to do. And in this case, think of this. Think of what would have happened if Paul had not gone after, if, if Barnabas had not gone after Saul. <laughs> think of it. I am so grateful for somebody like Barnabas who is such an advocate. At his core, he's a uh, God gives second chances, God gives opportunity, God wants to use everyone. And I'm just an instrument of his love and grace. And that's how I want to be. I think that's how we all should be. Okay, I need to keep going here. Um, All right, so Barnabas models, in my opinion, advocating that advocating is more important than reputation. Advocating for somebody who needs a second chance, who needs opportunity to flourish for Christ more than his own reputation. That's what I see here. We're going to go to Acts 11 now. So if you have your Bible, why don't you flip there? Because we have another Barnabas sighting in Acts chapter 11, okay? So fast forward about 10 years. 10 years have passed. And Saul has been ministering. He was from Tarsus, from that region, and uh, just ministering and people coming to Christ. And God was just using him, apparently, in an amazing way. What happens is the gospel is just spreading. It's just spreading like it was supposed to. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the world. That was the commission that Jesus gave his apostles. And now it has spread to the Gentiles as God used Peter to lead Cornelius, a Gentile in his household, Acts chapter 10. 
And now we get to 11, and the gospel was just exploding in Antioch. Antioch, by the way, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Antioch in Syria. We read about that. So here's what we read in verse 22 of Acts 11. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Look at this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. There's no doubt that Barnabas was a esteemed, godly leader in the church. Almost a statesman, we might say, in the church, highly respected. So he is the one who was commissioned to go God's just doing unbelievable things in this huge metropolitan city of Antioch. And he is commissioned to go there. And he thinks, I want to go get Saul. I want to go get Saul. I want to go find him in Tarsus and bring him to be my partner in ministry together with me. Now, again, as as you do a fair amount of reading and what was going on in Saul's life uh, at this time, you'll see that God was just using him and using him in really powerful ways. And one of the things that really strikes me as I then, as you read chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Acts, uh, is that God just does amazing things through the uh, partnership, ministry partnership of Barnabas and Saul. And that's when chapter 12 and 13 is when... uh, um, Saul's name was changed to Paul. And so God is just using him. And I think what begins to happen, again, as you read chapter 13 of the book of Acts, is they were sent out on a missionary journey, they called it, to travel the world to plant churches. And God was just (laughs) doing unbelievable things and people coming to Christ. And as you read chapter 13, the first part of chapter 13 of the book of Acts is you see Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas was clearly the leader. He was the senior statesman. Near the end of chapter 13, and I think this is because Paul's ministry was so powerful and profound, you read Paul and his companions. And as you study this and see what commentators say, they basically say Paul had clearly become the leader of the missionary team. Now, that leads to a second principle, again, something that I see in the life of Barnabas. This is it, that courage often means reducing your importance to empower others. Courage often means reducing your importance to empower others. I am so struck by the fact that Barnabas was not threatened by Paul. Paul was a dynamo. He was. Think about it with me. He was a brilliant theologian. He was an incredible evangelist. He was a world-class church planter. He was a spiritual mentor and discipler of many, many, many leaders in the first century. That's who he was. Barnabas wasn't threatened by that. (laughs) I love it. 
I love it. Let me give you a sentence. I'll say it twice. You don't need to write it down. It's just an important sentence to me. Courage means trusting God for your future and not having to manipulate and sabotage others for your own personal success. I want to say that again. Courage means trusting God for your future and not having to manipulate and sabotage others for your own personal success. I see this in Barnabas. Many of you know the term servant leader. I love that term. I think it's biblical. Servant leader, being deeply committed to helping others flourish and thrive more than yourself. That's a servant leader. Servant leadership to me is Jesus' leadership. He talked about the Gentiles and how they lord it over, but it should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you shall be what? Your servant. Some of you know this. Whoever would be first among you should be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is exemplified, I believe, so beautifully in the life of Barnabas. Okay, well, we're going to look at one more Barnabas sighting. So we're going to go over to verse 15 of the book of Acts. Why don't you turn there with me too? We read through chapters uh, 11, 12, 13, 14. I could spend time, I won't, talking about the Jerusalem council and how the church in Jerusalem had to decide that Gentiles didn't have to first become Jews in order to become Christians. Monumental moment in the history of the first century church, that it was Jesus, not Jesus plus anything, circumcision, obeying the law, none of that. It was Jesus, period, not Jesus plus, okay? That's what happens in chapter 15. Then the tail end is Barnabas and Paul have completed this incredible missionary journey Thousands upon thousands, undoubtedly, people getting saved, churches being planted. Look at what Paul says. To Barnabas, Paul says this. He says, let us go back, verse 36, and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Let me put a pause there for a moment. There's a young man named John Mark. Some of you might remember that name. John Mark, while Paul and Barnabas were on their missionary term team, John Mark was invited to be, I'm calling him an intern, kind of to be an intern on their team. Apparently, John Mark had a lot of promise. So Paul and Barnabas invited him to join their missionary team. Now, here's what we see if we go back to chapter 13, verse 13, about John Mark. Here's what we see. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, why do I bring that out? Because it's important what I'm going to talk about in a moment. John Mark had been asked to join the team, the Barnabas and Paul missionary team. He'd been asked to join them. He quit. He left. He deserted them, okay? That's important as I go back to John, to Acts 15. Okay, so I want to pick up now in verse 37. 
Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The dynamic duo split, (laughs) or I thought the band split, you know, whatever. But these two dynamic duos, God had used them so unbelievably together. Paul and Barnabas split. In fact, you see the word sharp disagreement? Do you see that in there? Let me talk about this. What in the world is going on? I want you to think with me what we've learned about Barnabas. Barnabas was an advocate. Barnabas was a mentor. Barnabas was a team player to the hilt. Barnabas was an encourager. Barnabas was a restorer. That's who he was. Think of what he had done with Paul. And so when they're ready to go out again to visit all the churches they had planted, he said, we're we're bringing John Mark. And Paul says, no way. And then it kind of apparently escalated a bit because these are strong words in the Greek about their disagreement. What's going on here? Barnabas' gifts, his heart, and I believe even how God called him to ministry was so much about giving people second chances. It was so much about restoring people who had blown it. It was so much about advocating for someone with great potential who he could help flourish. I think that was the core passion of his ministry, but not Paul. Think about what Paul's was. Paul was all about the mission. Paul was all about, I'm not saying this negatively, it was his calling. Paul's calling was all about winning the Gentile world for Jesus Christ. That's what his calling was. You see, I think Barnabas and Paul were two very godly men who ultimately had different ministry callings and gifts from the Lord. I think that's who they are. Paul is committed to take the gospel to the world. Barnabas was committed to give people a second chance, restore them, and see them flourish for Christ. And you know, it's interesting for those of you who know missionaries, it's not uncommon. It happens in churches and church staffs where people come to a point where their ministry callings and giftedness just are no longer compatible. It's not that they're being all arrogant and prideful and mean-spirited or anything like that. It's just like, When God puts a passion and a calling in your life, if you love him and are committed to him, you must follow it. And sometimes that's what happens with teams is it's not that somebody's being difficult here. It's just God has put something in my heart and we need to go our separate ways. God bless you. We'll see each other in heaven, I'm sure. Hopefully before. Hopefully before. That happens. I have friends to which that has happened. And it's like, this is not a passage to point finger. Who is wrong? These guys were so ticked off at each other. That's so sinful. That's not what this is about. And guess what the result was? Two missionary teams. There we go. 
That's not a bad thing, is it? That's a really good thing. And so Barnabas takes his buddy John Mark, takes off. Paul takes Silas. And it's so interesting as you go into chapter 16. I love the book of Acts, by the way. As you go into chapter 16, within the first couple verses, Paul and Silas pick up an intern. Guess what his name is? Timothy. That's a pretty awesome intern, don't you think? Timothy, that's who's added to their team. Now, those of you who know the story of John Mark know there is a rest of the story. This is so awesome to me. You know, some people would say, Paul devoted himself to win the world. All Barnabas did is try to recover and restore this guy who was a quitter. Listen what happens, though. The Apostle Paul is so awesome. He's writing as he writes his epistles, his letters. At the end, many of you know this, at the end of a lot of Paul's letters, he'll talk about people. Greet so-and-so, thanks so-and-so, so-and-so gives you his greetings, that kind of thing, because Paul always was part of a team. Colossians 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark. Oh, there's a family connection here, too. Barnabas' cousin, Mark, I love this, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That's like, he's off the blacklist, okay? He's, he's good. I vouch for him. It's all good with John Mark now. I love it. Book of Philemon, which only has one chapter. Verses 23 and 24 say this. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do, here he is, Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul's ministering with Mark now, okay? Isn't that beautiful? Uh, this is my favorite, 2 Timothy 4.11. The book of 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's last book that he wrote from prison. Most think he, it was between three and six months before he was executed that he wrote 2 Timothy. Tail end, last few verses, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at what he says. Only Luke is with me. Pick up, guess who? Mark, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Isn't that beautiful? He was restored. God used and rewarded Barnabas. Think of Barnabas, never wanting to be Mr. Superstar, never needing to be... uh, you know, the one that, that wore the, the champion ring or the gold medal around his neck. Think of Paul without Barnabas. Think of John Mark without Barnabas. And I share this with you, my dear, dear brothers and sisters, because a lot of you are Barnabases. You are. You don't want the limelight. You don't need the limelight. But God uses you in incredible ways to help other people flourish for Jesus. And I'm especially talking to your moms and your dads. Because the greatest ministry we have, Barnabas-like ministry, is, I believe, to our own children. We see that in him. I loved what one commentator wrote, one scholar wrote about Barnabas, because this is just so beautiful. By the way, um, you know what the four Gospels are? I know you do. Matthew, we'll skip the second one. Luke and John, guess what the second one is? Mark? Like this Mark? Yeah. There weren't a whole bunch of Marks like there are now. 
He wrote the second gospel. Pretty impressive. Restored guy, huh? Listen to this. He writes, uh, Barnabas gave John Mark a second chance at missionary work. John Mark later wrote the earliest of the gospels. Not an eyewitness himself, Mark wrote the earliest, apparently wrote down the recollections of Simon Peter. So he became very close to Peter. What if Mark had not been given another chance to outgrow his early mistake? Of course, God could have used other persons and means to develop a New Testament record, but isn't it a wonder to see the stewardship of Barnabas's life, although he apparently never wrote a biblical line himself? One of the reasons why Barnabas is one of my heroes is because he is the ultimate next to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate. He's the next servant leader. Servant leaders do everything they can to help others flourish for Jesus. And I just want to say again, many of you have that heart, have that gift, and have that ministry. We're not all supposed to stand up here and talk, okay? In fact, most, many, many aren't. We aren't all supposed to be in any kind of public ministry per se as much as investing in the lives of others. And some of you have that heart of a restorer and the heart of an advocate and the heart of a, I am going to go seek out that person, hear their story, and do everything I can to help them be restored and flourish. God loves that kind of heart. He loves that kind of heart. And so my friends, I just want you to really let some of this story about this amazing man soak in because I think he's so much like Jesus. (laughs) I think there's so many qualities about his life that are so like Jesus. He, He stepped back so that others could be promoted. I love that. He wasn't threatened He didn't try to manipulate. He didn't try to climb the ladder while he was pushing others around him down. Not an ounce of that in him. He wanted other people to flourish for Jesus. Is that your heart? I know it is for many of us. But maybe the next question is, what are we doing about it? Do you have some John Marks in your life? (laughs) There's some people in your life if you sit down and let them tell you their story, you could speak grace and hope and love into their lives. And God might just do this turnaround and see some beautiful things happen. I want you to think about that. That doesn't take superstar gifts. It just takes a heart and willingness and compassion and willingness to really listen and extend love and grace. I hope you'll pray about that. Let's pray together. Father, thanks. Thanks for this incredible example in Scripture, someone that in a lot of ways we've heard his name and we know something about encouragement, but maybe we didn't know his full story. Thank you for his story. Thank you for the way his story challenges and blesses me. I want to be so much more like this, a godly humility, yet a courage to risk reputation and maybe even personal success to help others flourish. Lord, give us that spirit because it is the spirit of our Savior. It really is. Thank you. May your words have impact in us, and may we 
then obey what you call us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.